it is another episode of Unapologetically Black Unicorns and how, how lucky am I to have sisters, and and I mean real life, like blood-related sisters <laughs> on the podcast. And they're, they're new to me. I uh, got the great opportunity to have a conversation uh, with them about policy stuff. So I thought, hey, why don't we have this conversation on the podcast? So I'm going to turn it over to first Rebecca and have uh, Rebecca introduce herself. Thank you, Karis. Well, I am so excited to be here. So um, thank you for the invitation and uh, excited to be part of the unicorns because I'm a big fan of unicorns also. Um, and you couldn't see, the, the, the people listening couldn't see our smiles when you said sisters, but you got two big Granger women smiles um, when you said you were bringing sisters on. You know, my uh, background is in education and I very much consider myself an educator in all ways of my life and as a learner and I'm constantly seeking out new places for learning. And I would say those two things are, are what ground me. And if you were going to capture some words, that's how I would describe myself as an educator and a learner. Awesome. I love that. And Catherine, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Um, also, thank you for the invitation and to be in conversation with you and my sister is, is quite a treat. Um, I'm Catherine Granger. I am a lawyer by training. Um, haven't practiced for a while, but I wake up in the morning because I have a strong belief that a new world is possible. And we right now have the ability and the tools to make it such. And so, you know, I, I read policy. Policy is my organizer. I read it to calm me before I go to bed. I, I used to write legislation, but now I really sit in the space of how do we wield power in a way to change outcomes? And um, how do we fix systems? I still very much believe in institutions and systems, even though they are disappointing me uh, every day right now. But I, but I, uh, I have spent my career really working on and focusing in how we change those systems and how we get to the root cause of oppression of why we are in these moments of stasis. And so, um, you know, that's who I am. I also like to dance, have dance parties in my pajamas before I go to bed. And I love walking in the beach. That's how I can like make sense of the world. And I love being in community with smart, curious minds. And so I always try to seek that out, no matter um, who the person is or what age. Thank you so much for introducing yourselves and um, telling us a little bit more about you. And by the way, I love walks on the beach. I am, I, I'm so attuned to the water. I had like no idea until that's my staycation runaway thing as I run away to the beach. But let's talk a little bit about also um, how we got introduced because I was really interested in increasing people's ability, particularly people with lived experience of mental health conditions, their ability to impact policy. And I find I found a lot of times people really didn't quite understand where the triggers are or how do you do that or have very good activist skills. And is that the same as having policy skills? So I'll start with you, Catherine. Can you talk a little bit about what it means, especially when you say that that policy is your organizer? First of all, what does that mean? And secondarily, what does it mean when we talk about understanding and moving policy to fix and change systems? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I first would start out by saying that 
I worked in government for many years, and in that capacity, um, was around or I was around elected officials who wrote and, and moved policy. And one of the things that became very clear to me is that the people who were making decisions about policy were not closest to the lived experience of the lives that they were trying to impact. And I think in particular, you know, Rebecca's expertise is in education policy or in education. And education policy was often drafted by people who their only experience with education is that they went to school, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And everyone thought that they were an expert as a result of it. And Ayanna Presley speaks about, you know, policy should be drafted by those closest to the pain. And I, I deeply believe that, that if we had a working democracy, that the people who would be driving policy solutions would be those that deal with the problems that lack of policy presents every day. And so my practice is trying to figure out how we enable as many people as possible to use policy as a tool. Because if you think about policy, not as this kind of foreign entity, but actually um, a, a, a space where you can actually bring solutions together and problem solve and create new structures and systems that actually work for the public as opposed to what it's used for now, which is largely just to maintain the status quo, right? Policy in our country has been created to keep people out and that's by design. And that's why it's hard. That's why our institutions are hard to access. And that is only because those people in power wanna keep power. And so as thinking about this differently is if we want to yield power for everyone, learning the tools to do that is the first step, but also remembering that we are our ex we are the experts um, because we actually know what we need for, for our mental health, what we need for our education, what we need for our safety. And if we had legislators that actually listen to that, we would be in a, a very different place. Okay, I just have snaps, claps, thumbs up, everything that says, oh my gosh, I'm like, so it, <laughs> that is like, you just articulated in you know a few minutes here, exactly why I got more interested in policy myself. Like I had no idea about this whole idea of policy per se, because I think I got into the work of, of having the lived experience, seeing that the systems weren't really working and especially working for black and brown people. And so I got into that activist realm of, no, it can't be this way. It has to be this way, but not knowing where those levers were and not understanding how legislation work or policy or regulations work. So um, kind of am self-taught in that way or, or very well mentored, I think would be a better term for me. And then um, Rebecca, since your field really is education, talk a little bit about what you're doing in education and then how now you're writing sort of uh, education for a policy institute. So yeah, if you, when it comes to like the policy questions, I mean, I am still very much in the space of learning and harnessing how we can actually pull all of this together. What I do in education, I mean, I've been in uh, K through 12 and also in the higher ed space, and I've worked across a lot of content areas. And what I see is that we create these learning containers that actually give people the skills and the knowledge and really the confidence and ability to be advocates for self and ideas to um, create change movements. 
And so when I entered into this work with Catherine and the Black Futures Lab and um, Alicia Garza, who helped uh, bring this project together, the idea was, you know, how do we harness both the inside sphere ecosystem of policy, which uh, Catherine is brilliant in, and the surrounding sector of grassroots organizing and how you actually even get in the door. And Karis, what you were saying about being mentored well and feeling like there was also a barrier, I mean, that really resonates. And we do that in so many different areas. I mean, we create different languages really so that people can't break into different silos, right? We create these situations to keep people out, even though you might be saying the exact same thing in public health and in education and in housing, we make it so that people can't go, you know, can't go across those barriers and they're false barriers. And what I see as bringing in education and learning opportunities is that you both show that those are fuzzy and false. And it's less about telling people what they should do and more about giving people really the, the uh, I was thinking even like, you know, the spine or the way that you can be flexible within your skin to see that you actually can move in these different areas, regardless of what your background is and that your lived experience makes it so that you know what you're doing. I mean, very much what Catherine was saying, that you already have the experience regardless of what your background is. And that through educational experiences, we provide people with opportunity to see that there actually are choices. I mean, how often does it feel like you've hit up against a wall and that's the only thing you can do? But through these learning containers, we can make it so that that barrier, that wall then is blurred so that people challenge it and see that there are more choices and there's place for questioning. And that's how I feel like we can harness, you know, education and opportunities for learning across sectors to make at large change movements. Wow. What Rebecca just said really struck with me with what's going on right now about critical race theory, even though we know that what actually we're talking about is history because it is by design, right? Again, going back to our institutions right now are set up to maintain the status quo. The people in power know that once you start to peel back that layer, those layers that Rebecca talks about that are achieved through education, whether it's civic engagement, whether it's history, whether it's just the truth, then we start to create structures where people actually are, are um, have liberation in their brain to be like, wait, there's another way we can change this, right? We call it cognitive liberation in the political theory biz. And, and that's super powerful because that suddenly shifts everything that we know and you start to question it. It is not a mistake that when Michelle Obama said, you know, I wake up every morning in a house built by slaves, that Fox News spent two weeks trying to dispel that when it's just true. And when we're talking about what, what their people are calling critical race theory is the fact that we had slavery in this country for longer than we've been at almost a country. That's yeah. just true. And if we were able to look at that truth and then decide, you know, people's opportunities are based on all of the, the faults that America, the rotten foundation of which America was built, 
then we can actually build a new one. And what is so terrifying, and education is the tool for that, which is what I heard Rebecca say. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we know the power of education because we weren't allowed to have it. Right. From from the very inception of, of being brought to this country uh, as as black folk, it was like, well, no, no, they can't. They can't uh, read. They can't write. They can't go to school. They can't have the Bible. They can't. We will tell them what we want them to know. Because then they can't vote and right, make decisions right, that right. impact the greater community. And then you can't have a mind of your own, for lack of a, a better way of putting it, to be able to say, well, wait a minute, no, uh, now that I can read the Bible, this says that this is not right. <laughs> you know, you you can't, no, you cannot do that. You're going to upset the world order, which you, you, you spoke before <laughs> when you were uh, introducing yourself, Catherine, about, you know, changing the world order. I was like, yeah, new world order, got it. So, um, but one of the things um, I was thinking about is around the term critical race theory in, in some ways has that hurt us because really it's history. End of discussion period, it's history. It is, it's not a revisionist history. It is certainly the entire history versus just a part of a history. So how does how does terminology like critical race theory, does the term itself create opportunities for people to kind of say, yeah, we're not going to have this? Versus if we had just said it was history, again, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just trying to understand the power of terminology and how sometimes that power of terminology and words can become a distractor, if you will, or a, a divider. What are either of your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, I mean, language can be wielded in any way that people want it to be. I mean, so many words, I almost feel like when they start being used, a term, you know, it, it comes in in boldness. And then as more and more people use it, it blends into all of these different colors and eventually begins to fade. I mean, I think there are words right now like community that are becoming faded because it became such a hot thing of include community. And now it's almost like you need people to define what that means or equity. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, critical race theory, uh, the, the language behind it had a very specific purpose within the, the law field that it was developed in helping people better understand um, equity and the law and how we would dig into history to see our current practices. And then it was really reformed. And I guess I think so much in color, it was turned into a different shade so that people could use it to then dismantle other movements and is now being harnessed in education to try and remove shifting uh, how we think more critically about um, what it is that we're teaching. And, you know, that would mean challenging the very foundation of why we have education in this country and reshaping so many things that have been put in place, such as um, standards and assessments and how we train teachers, right? So it's not necessarily even challenging just that term, because honestly, critical race theory, yes, I'm sure in some schools it's being taught deeply, but but it's not, you know, it's mm -hmm. trying to harness a different way of, of, of educating and putting in this term so that people then have a common enemy. And so I, I just think the fluidity of language and the fact that it can be used in so many different ways means that we constantly have to challenge the notions of what it is that we're actually saying versus just using a word or a term to define it, that we we always need to get down to, you know, the very roots of what it is that we're talking about. And mm -hmm. because 
we're so good at blurring language. We just constantly have to redefine and come up with new things so that we can keep really getting to the same thing, right? I'm sure, Karis, if we talk again in two months, there'll be a new term that people have adopted to try and dismantle something. I studied to be a lawyer and my background is in civil rights. And I did not learn critical race theory until I was well into my 20s, <laughs> like late 20s. <laughs> um, so it is it is a concept that is very useful for people at that level of uh, critique and analysis. It is not, as Rebecca pointed out, what is being taught in even high schools. But what was what struck for me as I was remembering the origins of this, right? The critical race theory became a response to the first time in this country where I really saw movement around dismantling white supremacy as a result, right, of the, the killing of George Floyd and the racial justice uprisings that we had during COVID. Suddenly, even mainstream media was talking about white supremacy in a way that like, you know, you had old white men on TV talking about white supremacist structures that need to be dismantled. It was shocking. And it was exciting and it was led by a populace of people that frankly, it was like kind of had time because we were all in lockdown. We're watching what was going on in this country and it broke something open. And our opposition immediately responded to that to we need to close it, we need to close it quickly and we're gonna use their own terms as Rebecca was saying and, and, and use them incorrectly and start to fight back as a result of that. But what I would argue is that why did we let that happen? Really what we were talking about is the truth was history. And so suddenly my politicians being like, well, I don't support critical race theory. Instead of just saying, this is history. This is crazy. And this is the, this is the problem with these root cause issues of the foundational structure, which this country is based, is based in, in white supremacy and patriarchy. And anytime somebody tries to deviate from that, and we actually had some deviation during COVID that was quite exciting, you break that structure open, but the status quo was powerful, man. And the people who even were on our side and we're seeing it now with defund the police, are like, oh, wait, wait, I didn't really mean that. And instead of us leaning in and saying like, critical race theory is not what we're talking about. We wanna tell the truth. We wanna tell our history and our history is based on white supremacy and this is how we're gonna change it. But it is, it is very devastating mm. how the opposition uses these tools to break us apart. And the reason they are successful is because white supremacy maintains a structure that allows it to remain. Right. So this, this then becomes like, oh, I feel so hopeless and I don't want to feel hopeless. I want to feel empowered. When I think about, you know, learning about policy and learning about these structures, that's where the power comes back in, where now I have a, have a tool that I can use, if you will, in order to be empowered to figure out not how to do this alone, but how to change um, structure systems, regulations, laws, policies. So is this part of what you're doing, <laughs> sorry, in the, in the Black Futures Lab is helping people really tackle some of these issues so that we're better equipped, I would say, to be able to have these conversations, understand kind of what's happening when somebody takes our terms and kind of turns that into sort of a weapon against us when it was really, yeah, just common sense stuff. Is that part of what Black Futures Lab is doing and how, how do you all do that? I actually, as you were, as you were saying that, Karis, I was thinking this is why we have the Black Policy Institute and the, and the Black Futures Lab. I am not hopeless about 
this moment in time, I think that we, we have so much power and we keep seeing real glimpses of that in the majority of this country that believes that what is happening right now is wrong. And part of what we train and believe in is at the Black Policy Institute, and as Rebecca mentioned, uh, Alicia Garza, who was one of the original uh, founders of Black Lives Matter, really came up with this idea of how do you use policy as a tool to get closer to Black liberation. And the way that we approach it is we have tremendous power to change the structures that currently exist. And as Rebecca brought up earlier, the reason that language is used the way it is, is to keep people out. So we really, you know, bring in the tools through trainers and experts and our area of expertise to give meaning to all of these terms that feel um, so out of reach and really reframe how policy is made, like we talked about, so that people come in and they realize, wait, I'm the expert of my community and I know how to, how to change it. And one of the things that we have discovered through the two years of doing this fellowship is that we do something that Rebecca taught us, which is, I, I thought I knew, now I know. Did I get that right, Rebecca? I always get it wrong. Yeah, and now that, that you said it, uh, I, I, I used it to wrong. think, now I think. I used um, to think, now I think. And I, I appreciate that you are crediting me with that, but I just brought it into the space that there are, are people that have been doing that. But um, yeah, keep going. Yeah, whatever, it's yours. Um, and <laughs> I, but it, it, what, one of the things that are the, many of the fellows think is, uh, it says, I used to think that policy was for white people, was for lawyers, was for rich people. Now I think, or now I know that policy is not going to change unless I get involved in it. And that to me, that is the most hopeful thing that we can hear, right? Because it's, it's recognizing the structures that exist are not working for us. I know what the answers are and I've learned the tools of which to do it. And if we do that in a way where we kind of spread our energy, because we are the majority, then these things start to unravel. That is why our, the opposition is making it so hard for people to vote right now. They know that. Mm -hmm. And our hope comes from, we're just gonna keep training people. We're gonna keep teaching people. The network is gonna keep growing. And that's how we win. But until we start to say, hey, this is a playing field that we can play on as well, we don't start to dismantle these structures that keep us up. And so when you're doing the curriculum, Rebecca, how, how did you decide like what things to bring in? You know, you were just saying, well, that wasn't really mine, but I just brought it in. So how did you decide what kind of things to bring in to create an experience for people that uh, is in, impactful and, you know, actionable? Well, I mean, I, I feel like it's so important to start with like the end goals. What is it that we're actually trying to achieve? And then how do you build a curriculum arc or, or this experiential learning that actually gets people to those end goals? And I think, you know, the content is, is hugely important, right? Actually having the knowledge and being able to dig into specific content and know the terminology and being able to work in those spaces. And then I think it's also really important to have skill building and can you adapt and change as you're in the field and as new things are being thrown at you. And then I also think it's important to kind of pull the, the curtain back 
and show people how things are being done. Because if you're really creating a powerful, um, and I like calling it learning containers, because I feel like we learn everywhere, but you can actually harness people in a safe and brave space that feels like, you know, you can uh, work through ideas and that you have community and and that it's a, a place to kind of work things out. So, you know, you can create these learning containers that actually give people the knowledge that they can then create it for other people, because it doesn't make sense to just teach people within one space. It's that you want to create huge movements where everything that we are providing and giving is for everyone to then pass on. And really, I think that that, you know, when I was giving the credit for, um, I used to think now, I think so many parts of this curriculum are pulling together brilliant things that people have done and then putting it together in the right pieces. I mean, I kind of think about curriculum and education as Legos, where there's all of these different pieces, and then you just need to decide what goes together for what you're trying to achieve. And there isn't a right or wrong way. It's just how we're building it in that that specific space. You know, we're, and we built it on the back of like a great institute, the Women's Policy Institute, and they were so amazing about sharing their materials. And so we, we had kind of this foundation. And then we were also thinking about, but we want to do some things differently because we were creating an all black space, which just felt so unique. Uh, oh, and care is so unicorny, right? That you just very rarely <laughs> yeah. get to be in these all black spaces. So if we're creating an all black space that's grounded in both understanding the current structures, but then also realizing that the current structures weren't actually built for black people to achieve black political power or to achieve political power. So it's, we both have to learn that structure and then we have to teach people how to challenge it and be in there with abundance and to question their own uh, belief structures and thought patterns because we've all been swimming in this water for so long that right we have to learn how to actually see the water. And so um, it was really taking people through what's the content, what's the skills, and then how do we also dismantle, while also giving people opportunities to both verbally and in written form articulate their ideas so that they then were able to question their own notions um, and continually refine. How do we help, uh, you know, I, I can do this work all day long and I could sit here and talk about this all day long, clearly. and. Sometimes I feel like it's really hard to still get the message across, especially in political spaces. So how, when you're helping people figure out like, you know, here's the tools, here's kind of what I know now, here's how I can be activated. Yeah. How do you get impact from that? Karis, I would love to throw this back at you a little bit. Um, Why did you choose policy? for you, given your study and and your lived experience as a solution? Because I think what the question you just asked us is something that you are are living right now. So I'd love to hear why you chose policy to go this direction. Well, you know, it really became apparent I was doing it. I didn't even know I was doing it, really. Here in California, we were trying to pass the peer certification bill. Many people know that to have, for peer specialists or peer supporters to be able to bill Medicaid, uh, Medicaid requires certain things of states, and you have to generally pass legislation to get those things done. 
So once I understood that part, which I you know, understood it through when I was working at the federal government and helping other states, but when I got here to LA, we were, we were one of the last states that was trying to pass this legislation and we couldn't pass it. One year, it just didn't pass. Second year, it didn't pass. By the time I got here, I think we were on our, our either second time or third time. And I was testifying and you know meeting with legislators and nothing was happening. Like we just couldn't pass. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, why isn't this, this, this just makes so much sense. 48 other states do it. Why can California not get this thing passed? So I asked and I asked and finally somebody told me, oh, well, we have Prop 30. I was like, well, what the heck is Prop 30? That's brand new information. What is Prop 30? Well, Prop 30 says if you add in a new provider type, all the cost, the the, the state cost, fall on the state, right? So for Prop 30, they changed it that in a way that if you add a new provider type, it shifts to the counties. So now you have a different cost structure. So it wasn't about we like peers, we don't like peers, we trust peers, we don't trust peers, stigma, discrimination about people with lived experience or not. No, it was about money. (laughs) It was literally about who's going to take the share of costs. Is it going to be the county or is it going to be the state? The state said, we're not doing it. And I thought, why were we never told this, that this was really the hangup? Once I understood the hangup, I was like, okay, we need a different strategy. (laughs) We need a totally different strategy because um, they really felt that they were going to be taking on all this cost that everybody and his sister was going to become a peer. So I had to show them that in fact, because they had done this with another uh, new provider, which cost the state trillions of dollars. So to the state, they saw trillions of dollars with peers. So I had to kind of say, well, no, let me show you how this actually works. I turned it into a math problem basically. So we actually did get the bill passed. So I started this group called the Policy Wonkers because I realized people then kept calling me because I was able to figure out how to do this translation process and transmutation. I don't know what I was doing, but I was able to use the policy weapon kind of in the way that it needed to be used. I don't, I don't, maybe I shouldn't call it a weapon. And then I said, I can't be the only one. I cannot be the only one. I have to train other people to do this or help other people figure out how to do this. I I got interested in it because I realized the power that it holds. To me, that's so, that's actually what we do at the Institute. And I, and I, Rebecca, you talked about a learning container and, and, you know, I'd love to hear you, you address this as you've kind of modeled a, a training that people can learn what Karis is talking about. But for us, like one of the trainings that we have is on budget because you can have the best idea in the world, but if it has a fiscal attached to it, or you can't explain how much it's going to cost the state, it gives a shield for politicians to immediately veto it, right? So as part of us learning the tools of the structure of policy, we, we look at all of those things underneath that keep your grand idea from being successful, because most things are knocked out because of procedure. Well, you know, I think everything is foreign until you taste it. And so, you know, the the second something touches your tongue, that's when later, when you get the same essence of that taste, you can then dig in and ask questions. And because there's no way you can ever teach everyone to do everything, right? You can never be exposed to all situations, but you can get little bits and tastes of it that build uh, your palate big enough that then you're like, oh, wait a second, 
you know, I've had a pork chop before and this just happens to be a pork roast. You know what I mean? Like you can, <laughs> you can figure out a way for people to, to dig in. When COVID hit, I worked um, kind of in the space between the, the public school system and city government and everything that was wrapping around it to think about how we would reopen schools. And, you know, this was a completely novel situation of all of a sudden having to go into school buildings and think about ventilation. And the only people who had been doing ventilation were people that had been designing, you know, hospitals or airplanes. Like you, you never bring that type of infrastructure into schools, which we should, but it just, right, that's not usually where we invest money. And one of the things that I noticed about people working in that space is that how people had never done the COVID route. They had never, you know, done that specific thing, but they had tasted other pieces like that. And so you start to see how everyone starts to adapt. And, you know, we create these hierarchies of um, understanding and hierarchies of people of who we think can um, access certain things. And really we're taught it so young that we then police ourselves into, sometimes you aren't actually being held out of a space. You're holding yourself out of that space. I know that that has fallen on me where I have created those barriers for myself. And I watch that happen all the time. And so really what we were trying to do in the Policy Institute is give people a taste and also dispel some of these hierarchies so that people could get in and interact. And so hopefully, you know, people don't have to get in so far that they're having to repeat and and go back, Karis, like your experience. We're hoping to kind of hit that at the, the front end so that people are questioning along the way and hopefully Prop 30 comes up and people are thinking about what's the money and the other ways that we maintain power to dismantle and know that it's not all about ideas and morality because it seems like that very rarely is what drives the decisions that we make. I think fuels our action, but doesn't necessarily drive the, the decision. Yeah, one of the things that I learned in uh, my other training as a industrial in industrial organizational psychology is that the presenting problem is never the problem. Yeah. So um, as we sort of wrap up, I, you know, I have one more question. I'm sorry, I just do have one more question. You, know, you used the term, Catherine, um, cognitive liberation, and I just kind of, you know, was doing my, oh, yay, yay, I love that. What what exactly is, I mean, you know, we can use the terms together and figure out what it is, but it sound, it's so powerful. What what exactly is that? Freedom. It's freedom. It's, it's the ability to understand that systems are, systems exist because they're created by humans. Uh, we have the ability as humans to change those systems. And if we don't get involved and do it, they're never going to change. That's it. And once we start to realize that we have the key to our freedom and the freedom, freedom for our community, right, we're free. And so it literally is when, you're, when your brain is, is, is free to dream of new world possibilities, and that creates freedom beyond what any of us can imagine. So I was going to ask you to wisdom drop, but I think you just did. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that was it. But just to make sure, are there any last, you know, golden nuggets, wisdom dropping that either one of you would like to do before we wrap up? Well, I would just say continue to challenge your thinking. And that means digging deep. I mean, there are so many brilliant people that are putting ideas out there. 
And just waiting for the spoon to feed you means that you are missing out on an entire world. And so I would just say, keep digging and challenge what you're thinking. So keep looking. The only thing that I would add is just to reiterate that we are the experts of our lived experience. Each person is the expert of their lived experience, and that's extremely powerful. And so even the days when you feel most hopeless, that, that is power that no one can take away from you. And that, that, is, that is why I do the work that I do. Wow. So this has been the most incredible conversation with two unapologetically Black unicorns who happen to be biological sisters and sisters to, <laughs> to, to, to me now, right? But uh, And I just want to thank you for taking the time today. As I started this conversation, I said I've had a very long day. I was tired, but now I am energized. I am energized. I am energized. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Karis. And thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, <laughs> and you too, Catherine. And Karis, thank you for putting this out um, all the time. I, I love listening um, to your podcast and the people you bring on. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners, just remember to, uh, well, first of all, join in next week. We want to, uh, we're going to have more next week. And then also, if you could subscribe, I really hate asking that, but it does help make sure that other people who are not aware of the podcast can actually find out where it is, what it is and listen in. So thanks everyone. And that's it. Have a great week.